Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. This is a series where we discuss the spiritual and philosophical aspects of tea and the life lessons and wisdom that grow out of such a practice. After all, tea lessons are life lessons. If you'd like to support our cause and keep these podcasts going, then visit globalteahut.org and sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine that covers all aspects of tea from growing, processing, and serving to the history, lore, ethnography, and even the spiritual aspects of the leaf. Every issue also comes with a tin of sustainably produced tea. Global Tea, of course, is also a community growing worldwide with a beautiful app for members that help you learn and grow together, as well as join or even host tea events yourself. This podcast is devoted to Cha Dao as a way of life. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, like the different genres, processing methods, science, or brewing methods and brewing tips, then check out our magazine or perhaps our YouTube channel, which is also called Global Tea Hut. There we have tons of videos, including a new brewing tea series where we do cover all the practical aspects of brewing tea. Of course, you can also come visit our free tea center here in Miaoli, Taiwan, Tea Sage Hut, where we offer two 10-day courses every month. Basically, this podcast isn't going to focus so much on the linear aspects of tea, the information about its processing, history, or brewing tips. It's going to focus instead on the life wisdom that comes from such a practice. Welcome back to the Life of Tea podcast. I'm here with Buddha. We're drinking some tea and discussing the second half of what we call the eight balls of this tradition. So if you haven't already listened to the last podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first half of the discussion on the first four balls. Today, we're going to be talking about the second half, which is the last four balls. Welcome, Buddha. Welcome. It's great to be back for this second part of this podcast. I think this physical well-being diet movement, it follows really naturally out of a lot of the topics that we were discussing last time, especially in terms of cleanliness and purity. And we were talking about um, the mistakes of separating body and separating mind and, and interpreting reality in these two different ways. Um, which is not the teachings of Zen, and I, I believe also not the truth of reality as it is, and these are both really insufficient maps. So let's dive into physical well-being, diet and movement, which is the fifth of the eight bowls, and uh, it'll be a really a continuation from the previous podcast and from the place where we left off and some of the topics we were talking about with cleanliness and purity. So I invite you to go maybe re-listen to the end of the previous podcast because we are really uh, launching right from that point into this second discussion. It says, it is unfortunate that much of the world has taken to compartmentalizing life, body for the doctors, mind for the psychiatrists, and spirit for religion. True healing is a unification of these false barriers. A life of tea is a life and applies equally to all aspects of truth. The sacred must flow through the spirit and body, unifying and then ultimately transcending such arbitrary boundaries. What we eat affects our tea incredibly. The pure foods are either vegetarian or that which is donated and then received by an open heart. We must promote physical well-being in order to heal the spirit as well. Tea has always been synonymous with medicine in its purest form. We drink tea to flush the toxins from our bodies as well as our hearts. Similarly, tea preparation involves the flow of energy through our bodies. For that reason, we practice qigong, taiji, or yoga to make this flow graceful, knowing that it will influence how we live and how we prepare our tea. So this one's about diet and movement. It's about um, cultivating health and strength, but also flexibility through stretching or yoga or qigong or tai chi or all these movements that so greatly impact one's ability to prepare tea. Um, the Buddha said that pure foods are either vegetarian or that which is given and received by a pure heart, which is beautiful. Um, so the monks, when the food was prepared specifically for them, it was vegetarian. But if someone gave meat from a pure heart and it was received with a pure heart, it cleaned it. It's kind of like organics in tea. I like my tea to be organic. I certainly at the center. All of our tea here is organic. We don't support unsustainable practices. We don't purchase teas that are made in any environmentally unfriendly way. However, if I'm at someone's house and with a pure heart, they serve that kind of tea to me and I receive it with a pure heart, all of that's cleaned away. Um, but this is about 
getting out of that separation of those two kinds of governing philosophies of like an idealistic philosophy. And by idealistic philosophy, I don't mean idealistic in terms of optimistic, which is another word for another use of the word idealistic. I mean more in the terms of philosophical jargon in the, in the philosophy departments of universities, idealism, idealistic philosophies are philosophies that emphasize the mind that everything's in the mind everything's soul that we are souls in bodies and that the soul is the only thing that matters and then the opposite is what is governing more of our reality nowadays which is that the physical is everything that we're just bodies we're just brains we're just chemistry neither of these perspectives is truth the truth transcends both of these we are neither just spirit nor are we physical we are both neither we are something beyond reality is something beyond it is beyond this distinction of mind and matter it's something beyond that and um, both of these perspectives are limiting both of these perspectives are unhealthy oftentimes spiritual too spiritual means ungrounded some of these people have difficulty even navigating the financial side of life the economic side of life Right? We've all experienced going to some spiritual place and because the teachings are so ungrounded, the teachings are so spiritual and they're, they're good on that spiritual level. They're healthy, they're, they're, they're good for the spirit, they're nourishing. And so it's not to be fully critical. But then when it comes to the act of like charging, they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to ask for money. They don't know how to handle that because their teachings don't incorporate the earth. And on the other hand, walking around as though you're just an aggregate of chemicals, molecules and secretions, and that everything's just physical, everything's just matter. It's incredibly inadequate for navigating our experience because we don't feel proteins. Proteins are concepts and they are also things that we can isolate in laboratories and understand scientifically through the help of instruments. But on an experiential day-to-day level, we don't experience them other than as concepts that pass through our mind. So there's more to our experience than just that. You can't dance with a formula. You can't dance to music if you're stuck in a just material form you can't make love you can't drink tea properly if it's all just about oh this one tastes like this and this one has theoburgins and theonines and whatever chemicals are in it you can't understand things that way right when they took einstein's brain his son was like have it if you need but you'll never understand my father by weighing his brain studying einstein's brain might might help us to understand brains more it's not to say that that pursuit is not legitimate or doesn't result in truth but the truth of who einstein was is not just his brain nor is it just some spirit in a body what's foolish about the idea those spiritual ideas is that in order to have the idea to think the philosophy that i am a spirit embodied one must have a brain to even think those ideas so (laughs) you know so obviously Neither of these, these are both limiting. Transcend them. Transcend the idea that take, that you can not take care of your body and somehow uh, cultivate yourself. It's not true. You won't make nice tea if your body's not healthy. If you're eating unhealthy food, you won't even be able to taste tea. It, you, because it's not that eating unhealthy food makes you insensitive. It's that you have to be insensitive to eat unhealthy food. McDonald's doesn't make you insensitive. You have to be insensitive to walk into McDonald's. You have to tune your body out because your body will shout at you, I don't want this. And so the more you're tuning it out, you're moving away from an ability to taste and experience tea. You're moving away from the sensitivity to discriminate and find fine tea. You're moving away from tea as medicine, a purifier of toxins that removes toxins from our body and heart. How do you cultivate a practice of removing toxins from your body and heart while also cultivating a lifestyle that increases your toxicity? How do you take in more toxins and then have a practice every day, the aim of which is to remove toxins? That's kind of pointless, right? That's like um, saying I want to live in a really clean house and then running around three times a day throwing things all around or making a mess. That's like saying I want to be free of possessions while you also buy a bunch of things every day. Right? So you have this huge income and you're trying to get rid of it and then you're stuck in this endless cycle. So if you're trying to remove toxicity, remove toxicity. But again, just like cleaning, not too much health consciousness. Too much health consciousness, physical health consciousness is like 
having a Stratocaster violin, the most beautiful violin in the world, and never playing it, just spending all your time tuning it and polishing it. Having a body and investing all your energy all day long in health consciousness of body means you're not living. You're just polishing the tool that is there for life, right? As Socrates said so famously, right? Uh, brutes and animals live to eat and drink. Humans eat and drink to live. So some energy certainly, as this is suggesting, as the eight bulls are suggesting, some energy certainly must be invested in physical well-being, both strength and endurance and physical uprightness, immunity to, to physical diseases, and also flexibility through Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga so that our body moves and the Qi flows properly, the subtle body um, becomes a part of our, our physical health and part of our tea practice. So we must invest some energy in that, in proper diet, understanding diet, exploring diet, learning what's good for us because diet is different for every human being. Um, and so learning to, um, to, to eat that. I will say that eating a vegetarian vegan diet will make you more sensitive. It will improve your ability to taste and experience tea. Um, and I would experiment with that and experiment with you know, what, what, finding the diet that's right for you and making that pure, and exercising, and finding the exercise that's right for you, and how many times a week, and how often you need to do it. But again, you have to be aware, not too much health consciousness. My teacher always used to say, not health consciousness, not death consciousness. Health consciousness being too much going to the gym, too much reading about these things, too much hyper-focus on health, and not enough on what to do with a healthy body. Otherwise, you wake up 30 years later, and you've invested 30 years of life getting a healthy body, and the purpose of having a healthy body is to live, and you haven't lived. You've just used your healthy body to get a healthy body, to use your healthy body to get a healthy body. That's like going, working 80 hours a week to make a bunch of money and never having any time to spend it or enjoy it. And then waking up when you're old and realizing now you're really rich, but you don't have the energy to go spend it or use it. So if you spend 30 years focusing completely on health, then you get old and you realize you haven't your body's going to break down no matter what, no matter how healthy it was, no matter how much you exercise, no matter how well you eat, some disease, old age, senescence, something's going to kill you, you're going to die, and you haven't really fully lived. So too much health consciousness is no good. And then death consciousness, my teacher interpreted as like taking drugs or too much sexuality or too much of the things, tobacco or all the things that are negative for us. Too much of that stuff is too much death consciousness. So the middle way, right? Cultivate health in physical body um, as, as a part of practice. Just like cleaning your space is a part of your practice. Having a healthy body is part of your practice. Be embodied, fully embodied. If you're not fully embodied, you're following some kind of partial philosophy of idealism that is not reality. Reality is neither spiritual nor physical. I actually don't even like this word spiritual. I use it sometimes because it's out of habit hearing so many people talk about it. But Zen is not spirituality because Zen does not interpret reality in terms of spirit being important, mind being important, soul being important, and the physical not. Zen interprets reality as something beyond spirit and matter, beyond mind and matter. Transcending both of these concepts, which are both limited and they are both unsuitable as maps for navigating a human life. In order to navigate a human life well, in order to be fulfilled and healthy, we need both maps. And we also need connection to the mystery, the capital M mystery, the Zen, that is beyond both of them. So don't get stuck in either one, but certainly don't get stuck in the idea that you can be healthy without a healthy body. We all face that. I face that. This is my weakest bowl. Let me put it out there. This is my weakest bowl. Um, I've meditated so many years of my life. I spent literally 12 years kind of staring at a wall, 8 to 10 hours a day, and let my body go. Made this mistake. Um, became disembodied, kind of. And uh, now, even now, I struggle with it. Um, it's easy for me to get fat. It's easy for me to get overweight. I have those genes. It's easy for me to retreat into peace or to let go and go into the more of the mind and the spirit and let go of the body. But um, I know this to be a fallacy. I know it experientially. I know that the condition of my body is the condition of my mind and spirit. And that if I'm to sit upright, it means sitting upright in posture. Meditation is posture. It starts with posture. It ends with posture. Posture is meditation. And so the meditative mind is the meditative posture. To sit in that posture is to cultivate that mind. So you have to be upright, you have to sit upright, and you have to have a healthy body. It's a part of being a human being. 
um, without being too attached because no matter how healthy your body is, eventually you'll get sick and old and die. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's uh, about the middle way. The virtue is between two, two vices. Good. So let's move on. The next one, healing and community, work and service. You can read this one. Healing and community, work and service. The only reason to seek mastery of this tea is in service of our world. Furthermore, it is perhaps paradoxical that the road to mastery itself essentially contains service, for without it, mastery can never be achieved. Having cultivated inner awareness and peace, we must seek to share it with others. In recognizing oneness in the center of ourselves, we are committed to healing this world one bowl at a time. For no being can be healthy in an unhealthy environment. We are the earth, the air, the mountain, and the tea, and we are the sharing. In community, we find strength and support, example and leadership. Together, we can achieve much more than any of us alone. Our tradition is forged from the combined insight of the tea masters, sages, seers, and cloud workers from ancient times unto the present. Let us donate our time, money, and energy towards promoting an awakening and healing through tea, sharing this life and way with all beings. As a practice, service helps us break away from our self-serving plans and goals, connecting with others in our heart of hearts. We must also work towards transcending the dichotomy between sacred and profane. All that we do is our own most life. There is nothing which is not our Tao. We should find our livelihood along our spiritual path and travel with it, rather than seeking for wealth, fame, or power outside our center. We should furthermore view our work in the world as another kind of service, offering us the chance to donate some of our resources as well as the opportunity to work on ourselves through all the responsibilities and relationships we encounter in the world. Like the lotus, we cannot survive without the mud. So this is my favorite bowl. Uh, in our tradition, we always say we're not here to learn to make tea. We're here to learn to serve tea. As I look around the world, I see a consumerist, globalized society raised with the ideals that I was raised with, that the more that we take care of ourselves the happier we'll be. And yet, looking around, watching millions and millions of people following that way, I see nothing but anxiety, suffering, and disconnection from each other and from source and from our planet. And meanwhile, all those that I've ever met who have found true joy, true bliss, have found it in the service of others and the selflessness that such service engenders in our hearts the connection that we're all seeking. We all want to matter. And the way that you matter is to make others matter to you. If you stop anyone on the street and ask them, who do you love most? Immediately, they always say the person who loves them the most. Their grandmother, their mother, their beloved. It's always the person who loves them the most that comes to mind. So if you want to be loved, then love. The more you love, the more you'll be loved. The more others matter to you, the more you'll matter to others. It really works that way. And also, even on a personal level, whenever we're going through something in our lives, we're, we've encountered some kind of difficulty or obstacle, one of the fastest and easiest ways to overcome it is to go help someone else. Go ask somebody else about what's going on with them. Get out of your fear. Get out of your arrogance. Get out of this self-centered mode where you unconsciously navigate the world from a stance of separation, from a stance of self and other, subject and object, from a stance of, of crystallization of ego, and all the self-aggrandizement that comes with that, as though this whole universe is about you, when actually it's not at all. I mean, we're taught in the West that we're unique because we're special and we're special because we're unique. The more unique you are, the more special you are. But actually, we're all far more unique because we're a part of everything. Because the atoms that make up my body have been around for billions of years and we're once in stars. Because the breath that I take is all the air of the whole earth and the water I drink was once 
within Napoleon and Genghis Khan and the atoms of my body have passed through many, many forms and will continue to flow through other forms of energy. And so that is really our true speciality, our true essence and our true greatness. And there really isn't a way to just escape and find some corner of the world where you can go be successfully happy on your own. That's like a cell in the body standing up and saying, hey, I don't care about any of these other cells as long as I'm happy, which in essence is what cancer is. And it's no wonder that on the micro, so it is on the macro, on the macro, so it is in the micro, that's the disease of our age, hmm. is cells uh, trying to be selfish. But actually your heart won't let you do that. Because in order to live on an island paradise and and just care about yourself, you have to close your eyes, you have to close your ears, you have to close your heart, you have to pretend like you don't see all the suffering of all your brothers and sisters on this earth who are going through all kinds of stuff. You have to be ignorant, and that ignorance won't really serve you. That happiness won't really succeed. And it's also result-oriented, and we're not creatures of results. We're not creatures of destination. We're creatures of journey. So this is what Shunryo Suzuki used to say, right? Ask yourself, is it better to succeed or find fulfillment in the effort? If you can't answer this question, you're not ready for Zen. <laughs> and if you can, then you found one of life's greatest treasures. So we, when we connect to others, we're finding that fulfillment in the journey. We're finding that uh, fulfillment in our way. And we're finding ultimately the key to also eternal life. Because the key to eternal life is to give it away. Give away your life. Give it away to others. And it will go on through all the gifts that have also been handed down to you from previous generations, you'll be a part of that stream, you'll be a part of that flow of all the good things that flows down. And you'll live also in the memories of the people that you that you loved and that mattered to you. And as a result, you matter to them. And ultimately, that's what we all really want. We want to be loved, we want to matter, we want to connect. We're all seeking connection. That's what we're really seeking. And there's a lot of shadows and illusions that we chase because we think they are what we want, but they're not truly what we want deep down. What we truly want deep down is to matter. We want connection. We want love. And you only find that, <clears throat> and you only find that through service. You only find that through working for others. So in, in Zen and most forms of Buddhism, no matter what we're practicing, we always have a clause that comes kind of at the end of everything, which is for the good of all beings. So we do this for the good of all beings. We do that for the good of all beings. We meditate for the good of all beings. We pray for the good of all beings. We cultivate ourselves for the good of all beings. We practice tea and, and increase our tea skills so that we can serve others. It says also in there that there's a paradox in this um, because um, not only is service the reason that we, we seek mastery in our way, so we self-cultivate ourselves so that we can serve others. That service starts already with the self-cultivation. One of the bodhisattva vows that we take is to save all beings. Though beings are limitless, I vow to save them all. And the first way you can save all beings is to save them from your stuff, from your dirt. The more that you clean yourself, the cleaner this world is. If you can save all beings from your kleshas, your defilements of mind, of speech, of body, of action, if you can... If you can clean the world of just your own stuff, you've already cleaned it by that much, by that drop. The more people that do that, the more we all rise together. The more one falls, the more we all fall together. So that's the first way that you can serve all beings. Just by cultivating yourself, you're already making the world a better place just by that. But then as you get more cultivated, you can um, bring love and bring smiles and bring healing energy into places where it's needed. You can, you can start to make a difference. You can start to matter. You can start to carry healing energy and, and, uh, and whatever form that takes. Music, poetry, tea, tea, serving tea to people, becoming a doctor, helping out at the homeless shelter. It doesn't matter. All, all on the physical, on the spiritual, on the mental, uh, on all levels, there's tons that can be done. And it's all wonderful. And so when you, when you, you know, but a doctor can't just start treating people. He needs training. And it's not selfish for the doctor to go to medical school for eight years. 
so that he can be a doctor and heal people for the following 30 or 40 years mm -hmm. or 10 or however long he lives. So we need some training. I can't loan you $10 if I only have five. So we train in order to be of more service. And there's, that's the, there's great joy in that. If you're in a room and somebody's having an emergency and, and they say, help, is there a doctor here? I need a doctor. If you're that doctor and you say, I'm a doctor, right? Of course, it's a very serious situation. That person's maybe choking or whatever. I'm not saying that you're happy that's, that misfortune has befallen another human being. However, there is a great joy to be able to be of service, right? To be able to say, I'm a doctor. I can help, right? To raise your hand, to, to be able to volunteer that, to have that training is wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. Same thing, you know, I don't, uh, because I'm a monk, I don't usually touch money, very rarely, only when I travel alone and uh, Shun will give me a little bit of pocket money for the airport or something. And so if I do find myself in a foreign city and I come across like a homeless person on the street and I happen to have some money in my pocket, I feel like that doctor. Oh, there's something I can do. I can give some of this money to this person. Wonderful. Wonderful. I can be of service. So the more we cultivate ourselves, the more we can be of service, the more we can help our others, the more our capacity increases. We develop a greater and greater capacity to be of greater and greater service. So we start out as little sprouts and we protect our trees and we protect our practice. But eventually our practice grows into larger trees that start bearing fruit for others and shade for others and house, housing for others. But it says, despite seeking mastery of tea in order to be able to serve better tea to others, which is the only reason to practice anything, it's, it's no useless to practice music and never play it for anyone. <laughs> or develop acting skills and never make a movie, or whatever it is. We're doing it for service of, of humanity and spirit. So we seek mastery of tea to be able to serve others' tea. That's the, the only reason to seek it. Just like the only reason to cultivate yourself in Buddhism is for the good of all beings. We do that for the good of all beings. By cultivating ourselves, I remove my own dirt from the world. That's quite an achievement. I'm not there yet, but maybe one day... Little by little, we can remove my dirt. And then also, the more of my dirt I remove, the more clear of mind I am, the more patient, the more kind, the more I can do for others. But the paradox is, it says, furthermore, it is perhaps paradoxical that the road to mastery itself essentially contains service. So that not only are we cultivating our tea practice so that we can serve others tea, in order to master tea, you have to serve tea. So even if you sat on an island and perfected the art of brewing tea for yourself, there are a tremendous amount of tea lessons you would never learn because you can't learn them until you start serving others. Hmm. Like dude learns guitar in his basement and he learns to jam really hard, but there he'll reach a ceiling because there are certain lessons in music that you can only learn by playing in front of a live audience. And with other musicians. And with other musicians. Right. So there's only there's only there's there's a lot of lessons that you so you won't ever reach mastery because there's a lot of lessons that you need that are involved in and bound up in and only come through serving others. So all of our practice should always be for the good of all beings, whether it's personal, meditative practice, self-cultivation, because self-cultivation is tea cultivation. You make better tea because you are more, not because you know more or you have more skills but because you are more. Tea comes from the heart. It's like, you know, two musicians, same sheet music, same guitar even, and you have two very different songs depending on the heart, right? We say the path from the head to the hands is through the heart. So the heart of the brewer affects the tea. So as we practice and develop our tea skills, we always have to keep in mind that we're, we're not here to learn to make tea, we're here to learn to serve tea. But at the same time, this is the paradox, you also cannot achieve mastery without... Uh, serving others right back to the doctor he goes to medical school so that one day he can treat his fellow humans and help them and heal them of their illnesses right but also he won't really become a good doctor and still he starts treating patients a doctor right out of medical school still has a lot of lessons to learn in fact they know this in medical school so that's why they spend usually the last year or part of the last year doing internships actually working in hospitals because there's so many lessons you can't learn until you actually start treating people so they go to school in order to be able to treat people, but, and that's, that's amazing, but also they can't really become a, a masterful doctor until they start treating people. Mm -hmm. So the two are bound up with each other. This is the paradox, right? You, you go to medical school to become a doctor, but you, you don't really 
achieve mastery in, in the healing arts until you start actually healing patients. So we practice our brewing skills to, in order to be able to serve others, but we can't achieve mastery without serving others. We self-cultivate. We practice meditation, prayer, all these eight bowls to better ourselves so that we can be of greater service to others. We don't even like diet and movement. It's not about having the healthiest body or big muscles or even living longer, right? They say that the ancient Taoists had all kinds of uh, qigongs and diets and regimens that would allow them to live to great ages of longevity, 100 years, 200 years. Some of that might be mythical. It might be legends. But who knows? Maybe they did have the skills that allowed them to live 200, 300 years. Certainly there are life forms on this planet that are capable of that. There are trees that live thousands of years. There are turtles that live hundreds of years and whales, etc. So there are animals that can do that. It is maybe possible for human beings to slow things down and, and live longer. But they were reluctant to just teach that to other people, which is my point. Whether or not there actually were humans living to be two, 300 years isn't really essential for the point that I'm going to make. The point is that in those stories, those Taoist masters were reluctant to teach their longevity methods to just anyone. Why? Because if I have a method that I can extend your life from 50 to 200 years, the more important question, so you're going to die anyway. You're going to die 50 years, 200, 300, eventually you're going to leave. So the more important question is, what are you going to do with those extra 100 years? Are you going to just consume more? So we give you 100 more years to consume more and destroy the earth more. What is the purpose of that, that longevity, right? So you're investing in the health of your body for selfish reasons so that you can look a certain way, so that you can, you know, boost your ego up, or so that, that you can have a healthy body. We talked last time, too much health consciousness is like having a expensive instrument that you only polish and never play mm. right so you're not living like socrates said right a animals and brutes live to eat and drink humans eat and drink to live having a healthy body is wonderful and it's a it's very unskillful to not invest some energy into being embodied and into your own health going for a run going to the gym eating well keeping your body fit right but even if you extend your life, what are you going to do with that life? Eventually, you're going to die. And to live on, you give it away. What are you doing for others? What are you passing on to other people and to the next generation? What are you, what are you giving to humanity? The great ones gave. That's why they're still remembered, because they left behind things that benefit us all. So the more service you give, the more you'll matter, the more you love, the more you'll be loved. So all of this is the... Is the purpose and end of all cultivation we cultivate ourselves so that we can be of greater service we cultivate ourselves to diminish our own negative impact on the world and even the aspects of our cultivation that are physical like making a, creating a healthy body and then maintaining it the purpose of having a healthy body is not so that you can get off on it that's not going to bring you any satisfaction that's not going to bring you any fulfillment there's no fulfillment in that but there is tremendous fulfillment in using that healthy body to be of service to others, to matter to others, to make others matter to you. And uh, through that, all of us together, we can, we can rise up and we can, we can create a world that we're all proud to live in, a world that our descendants can hold their heads up high and be proud to walk around. Because, you know, like most of us, I'm tired of living in a world where I have to drag my head in shame, where I'm ashamed of what we're doing to Mother Earth, what we're doing to each other, what we've done to each other already. All the guilt of that, the endless, beginningless kleshas, defilements of guilt, of greed, of negativity. And so every, every negativity that has happened on this Earth ultimately was really born of greed. And every good thing that's been done on this earth was born of selflessness. Hmm. I love what you said about um, self-cultivation, how that is to diminish our negative impact on the world. Well, that's the first half. The first half is to, is to diminish our negative impact on the world. But as you, as you diminish your negative impact on the world, 
you're also creating space and clarity in your own mind, which means you're creating more capacity to help others. Mm -hmm. Right. And your capacity will increase, will increase, will increase. And you can devote more and more and more of your time to it, uh, you know, until you can devote yourself completely to it. This is this is possible. Right. Another thing that um, I really love about here is it says here, there is nothing which is not our Tao. We should find our livelihood along our spiritual path and travel with it rather than seeking for wealth, fame or power outside our center. Mm. Um, I was brought up, you know, with the Western idea of separation of between self and other and, uh, you know, work time and free time and play time, you know, my time and, and all of that. And then, you know, now that I'm serving here at the TCH hut, I realize more and more how everything is connected and, you know, your livelihood should be what you want to do in this world, what you want to accomplish, not, you know, they shouldn't be separate. There shouldn't be no separation between what you really want to accomplish with your life and earning um, a livelihood. Yes, follow your bliss. As Joseph Campbell always said, follow your bliss. Always follow your bliss. Life is too short. Um, do what you love. If it's good for you and it's good for the earth and it's your Tao, it's your calling, it will be good for the earth if it is your Tao. If it's harming any being, it's not. Remember in... In we one of the reasons we practice meditation is so that we can hear the intuitive voice. Problem is that right after, right on the heels of the intuitive voice comes all the habit energy that we carry. And we carry a tremendous amount of habit energy. We carry our own habit energy cultivated over a lifetime of re repeatedly uh, following negative patterns. And also a lot of the habit energy we carry was encultured into us, as we've been speaking about. And that comes from humanity itself, the history of humans on this planet. It comes from our culture and the cultures that informed it, the previous cultures that it, that it evolved out of. <clears throat> and so overcoming all that habit energy is difficult. And it's difficult sometimes to, tell the, to hear the voices because the intuition arises and then the habit energy arises. And very often I find, you know, even people practicing self-cultivation, practicing, you know, spirituality, whatever you want to call it, they still are confused about those, about the, those two voices, about the intuition and the habit energy, right? So if it really is your Tao, of course it will be good for the earth. It will be good for others. And don't worry about any of the foolish fears of financial insecurity or whatever you're afraid of. Life is way too short for that. You came here naked, you'll leave naked. Most likely... That's all just fictions in your head, ghosts. You've probably never gone a day without food unless you were fasting intentionally or <laughs> without clothes unless you wanted to be naked. So you really don't have a basis for it. And you will find that if you do follow your Tao, you'll get better at that thing and eventually the universe will take care of you. On a practical level, if you want to put that in terms that aren't so foo-foo, you know, you'll get good at that thing and others will pay you a fee to do it. Uh, so if your passion is photography and you make photography that helps inspire and enlighten others and shows moments of this reality in beautiful and powerful ways, and that could be anything from social commentary and the need to expose things or deep spiritual art. And if you follow that passion, eventually you'll get good at it and people will pay for your photographs for sure or for your skills. And you'll find a way or you'll teach it or some other method that will um, provide a livelihood for you. The world will take care of you if you're following your Tao. Mm -hmm. um, and so you got to overcome your fears and follow your bliss. Always follow your bliss. And your, but your bliss is, is your intuition, is your deep Tao. It's not that those impulses, right? Marcus Aurelius said, stop allowing your guiding principle to be pulled about like the strings of a marionette by your selfish impulses. Hmm. Stop allowing the guiding voice inside of you to be pulled by your selfish impulses. Mm -hmm. So you'll know the difference. You'll know it maybe at least in hindsight by the consequences. But if you find your Tao, it will be good for the earth. It will be good for you. It will be good for humanity. And you will also find that the true joy of it is in serving it. When I first started making tea, I loved to drink tea. I loved to drink tea alone. I just love tea. That hasn't left me. But over the years, I came to realize 
slowly, slowly, more and more consciously that what I really love about tea is sharing it, serving it to others. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the purest joy in tea. And over time, all the material aspects of tea have all left me because it's a beautiful practice in that way, because you know, you, you start collecting teaware, you start collecting tea, you start hoarding, and you're doing that thing, that worldly thing, trying to fill that hole in you with stuff outside of you, and you're trying to gather to, to fill that hole in, that is really made of a disconnection from source. That's what it's made from. And you start collecting things because you think that's going to fill that hole, but it doesn't work. But in the meantime, at the same time, those things that you're collecting, you're, you're slowly giving them away because you're, you're collecting tea, but then you're preparing it and sharing it with people. And then slowly over time, you start to realize, hey, wait a minute. I don't enjoy the shopping so much. I don't enjoy the collecting so much. I enjoy the sharing. And then slowly the shift starts to overcome you. And you start, and eventually now when I'm out, if I see a piece of teaware, it only attracts me if it's of use in serving tea. So every teapot I look at, I'm like, oh, what, how would I use this to serve tea to others? What place would this play in my service, in other words? In fact, nowadays, I don't even, if it's not, if it doesn't play a role in, in this, in what I want to facilitate, which is service, if it doesn't play a role in service, I won't even see it. We're out in a shop and somebody's like, Hey, is this a nice pot? And I'm like, Oh, actually that is, but I didn't even notice it because it, it, it's maybe too small or it wouldn't just wouldn't play a role anymore in the way that I want to serve tea. Like I collected little one person pots back in the day, but those pots don't really have any value to me anymore. Mm -hmm. I want I want to be able to share tea. I want to be able to serve tea and, and give it away and be generous with it. And tea is about hospitality. It's about sharing. It's about connection, mind to mind between people. And these are all the, the true spirit of tea. It's through community and love and sharing and all that hospitality that makes tea the second most consumed substance on this planet. And then also connection to nature, connection to spirit, connection to all the like deeper elements of tea as well. So when you find your Tao, you have to jump, you have to go for it and never let money be a concern. You can even ask yourself, like, what would I do if money was of no issue? If I was the son or daughter of a billionaire and money wasn't an issue, what would I do with my time? Whatever you answer, go do that thing, especially if it's not selfish. I mean, I mean your true answer. One of my first lessons from my, my sensei, from my Zen teacher was he said, Zen is doing whatever what you want. And at first I really didn't understand that. And I really rejected the teaching. I was really against it. I was like, what, what does he mean? I mean, I tried that as a teenager running around doing whatever I wanted. And it was highly unsuccessful method of life, selfish to the extreme, missing everything around me that mattered. And then I realized that he's actually right. But the thing is before, you know, Zen is doing wholly what you want. So yay, you can be a zenny and go do whatever you want. There is a caveat though. It's a big one. In order to do only what you want, you have to first know what you want. What you really want. What you really want. Deep down. Deep down. What you really want in your heart and soul. Mm -hmm. You need to ask that question. So don't answer the what would I do if I was the son or daughter of a billionaire with like, oh, I'd jet ski every day and hang out on the beach because that would get old. Mm -hmm. You get bored with that. You would. You need something deeper. You need a deeper answer. You want to go be beneath that. What do you want? What are you after? Mm -hmm. Right? Even at, even in going to the beach, what are you after? Mm -hmm. Freedom, relaxation. Relaxation is a state of mind. It's not dependent on the beach. If you're dependent on the beach, then what happens when you're on the beach and a hurricane comes? Or a helicopter flies overhead. There goes your peace. Fragile peace. Or sand flies bite you or whatever it is. Or some tout comes and tries to sell you stuff disturbs your peace peace is not external it's internal so are you saying you want to go sit on a beach all day what you're really saying then is you want to be at peace peace is a state of mind doesn't require a beach mm. so ask the question on a deeper level what do you want and when you get that answer then go do that f fully and everything is your practice everything is your Tao. everything is tea in every moment in every step in every breath from the moment i wake till the moment i sleep i am preparing tea how you do anything is how you do everything. Hmm. How you put on your shoes is how you make tea. And in the end, your life will be spent doing all those small things more than whatever it is you think defines you. 
you say I'm an artist and I paint, you'll still spend more time on this earth putting on shoes and chopping vegetables and walking upstairs, etc. And how you do those things is how you paint. How you live will affect your, your painting, affect what you see, how you interpret, etc. So this is why we have these eight bowls and they kind of cover every area of life because every area of life is tea. That's what makes it a Tao. Hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the next one, um, which is connection to the great nature, bowl tea. The leaf is the highest of scriptures. In tea, we read sutras written not in the language of man, but that of the mountain and forest, earth and air, brook, stream, sunshine and moonshine. These leaves contain vast tomes, if we but learn to speak their language. In ancient times, it was said that a leaf fell into the divine emperor Shannong's kettle as he sat in meditation. This legend speaks of the plant kingdom's need to be human, to reach out and teach us of our origins. In drinking bowl tea, we return to the oldest brewing method. We seek connection to the spirit of tea, as it has been drunk these thousands of years. In leaves and water, we find simple connection to nature and roots reaching down into the depths of our time and evolution to find our own source. In this way, we also wash away any of the pretensions associated with expertise, not allowing our training to make us feel superior missing our only chance at connection with nature, others, and ourselves. We drink bowl tea in the shaman's hut for healing and silence, wisdom and smoke, runes that hint at the great mystery these veins unlock. That's probably my favorite passage in the whole sutra. <laughs> uh, though My favorite bowl, of course, is the service. My favorite passage is the one on bowl tea. Bowl tea is about the meditative ceremonial space. Uh, it's about uh, connection to earth. It's about reducing tea to its simplest form, to just leaves, water, and heat. Any bowl, any leaves, any water, any heat. As si the rest is mind-made. The rest is made by, up by us. And tea that costs $5 or tea that costs $10,000, put them both in the forest and they turn into dirt. And the frogs don't care. And the sun doesn't care. The world does not separate like that. So... By drinking bowl tea, we're connecting to our source, to each other, to ourselves, to nature. And as a tea practitioner, we're also learning to relax all of our training, to let go of it, to flip it off, all the mind, all the discernment, let go of all understanding and be present. And that's another direct way of knowing. In the modern world, the this is why meditation and bowl tea are so important because in the modern world, our education is so linear. It's so textual based that the average educated person has no regard for any truth or experience that's not interpret, interpreted or at least has the possibility to be interpreted in conceptual form. There's only a respect for conceptual intelligence. But there's another way of seeing. There's another way of knowing. It's more direct above, beyond, and surrounding the mind. A very direct way of seeing and being a nonverbal communication with the world, um, pre-conceptual. And that is absolutely necessary for us to be sane, that way of seeing. It's very important. It's part of our makeup. It's a, it's a very important part of who we are. And uh, it's, a part, uh, it's, a, it's a form of communication that we're losing as we move more and more into a digital age and to distraction after distraction and fail to be present onto our own most lives as they pass by and onto the beings around us who we love the most, onto the gorgeous sun and the bounty of abundance that surrounds us in our life. And so tea teaches us to treasure the ordinary, to be present, to love what's before us. And Bolti is all about all these things, about letting go of our training so you're not a snob, so you don't show up at someone's house and they're trying to serve you tea and they're trying to connect to you. They're trying to show you hospitality. And instead you're sitting there thinking, oh, this tea's not good enough. Those kettles aren't good enough. Your brewing methods aren't good enough. No, we have to learn to shut our training off, to be fully present and show up no matter what and be able to receive the connection that is behind whatever's coming through, no matter what form it is somebody's trying to connect to us or nature's trying to connect to us we can we can connect because we're open and receptive and you know in sanskrit the word for wisdom is prajna pra means before and nya is knowledge and in zen we translate this as the beginner's mind the beginner's mind is beautiful open receptive ready to learn ready to connect 
enthusiastic to be a part of as opposed to dismissive right the expert has no possibilities they are dismissive they already know they're closed they're cut off right I read Einstein's biography and his whole life he was just constantly asking questions, asking questions. And some of his professors got really annoyed with him. And they're like, you know, you're just troublesome. You're constantly contradicting me. You think you know everything. And he was like, what do you mean? I just keep asking questions. I don't know anything. All I have is questions. And he continued to ask questions his whole life. And that was his genius. Same with Socrates. He just kept asking questions. In Zen, we call this wonder and, and learning to rest and be comfortable in the mystery be comfortable with uncertainty you don't need to know everything you can't know everything it's not possible let go of the conceptual mind and be open to the uncertainty be open to the unknown and bolti just is all of those things and so much more but it's about the more spiritual side of tea the stuff we talk about in these podcasts are the things that surround and enrich bolti uh, but a better discussion of Bolti actually happens after we have the eighth, the, the eighth bowl, which is Gong Fu Ti. So you read that, and then we can show how these two are connected. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the eighth bowl is Grace and Beauty Gong Fu Ti. Our tea life isn't just about a greater connection to nature through the leaf, but an attunement with ourself as well. We must therefore cultivate both inner and outer harmony, a flow from the absolute into the relative. We learn this flow through the practice of Kung Fu tea, refining our sensitivity and grace as we prepare finer and finer tea over time. We must spend adequate time doing exercises to refine our palates, our sensitivity to tea and its qi, as well as some academic study of tea and spiritual matters both, in order to refine our intellects as well. We should be able to articulate tea and spiritual matters and feel comfortable doing so, our mastery of tea includes a grace with all kinds of teaware, preparation, discussion, and presentation. We should know dry leaves by appearance and smell and be able to prepare them with the grace and beauty that transcends the ordinary. We should strive to brew the tea the way it wants to be brewed, recognizing its inner nature and becoming a graceful part of that flow. We should also develop our aesthetic sensibilities in recognition that beauty comes from the divine, and that it significantly affects our ability to transform others through tea as well. A beautiful tea arrangement aids in one's transformation. All of this refinement should temper our spirits and teach us how to live in grace. Beautiful. So just as there's a danger of culminating skills and then becoming snobby, there's a danger of also just resting in passivity and drinking too much bold tea and not caring about technique and saying, ah, it doesn't matter however you like it and not developing any skills or ability, right? You can't, if you want to be of service, you have to learn to, it's not enough to have a passion for music or to feel the soul of music. You also have to learn the techniques. You have to learn the frets and where to put your fingers. You have to learn the notes. You have to learn to read sheet music. You have to learn the history of music. You have to learn the, his, the, the, the development and evolution of it. Right? All of these things are essential to um, being able to make great music for others. Just like a doctor has to go to school. They have to learn. They have to be trained. They have to know a lot about medicine and prognosis and diagnosis and all those things. In tea, you should have, uh, you should continue to increase. Read Global Tea Hut and learn more about teaware, about history, about the production of different kinds of tea. You should be able to discuss the tea that you're pre preparing for your guests and explain it to them and where it comes from. You should... Uh, develop your skills so that you can bring the tea to its greatest potential in Gong Fu Tea. So these two actually harmonize and work so wonderfully together. And having them both in one's tea practice is also emblematic of all the ways that we can work as human beings because all tea le lessons are also life lessons. And the Buddha said the wings to awakening are equanimity and sensitivity. So we increase our sensitivity, our awareness. We continue to experience more, to become wiser, to see more to be more present, to be more open, to be more direct, to be more awake, to be less limited by our own defilements, as we talked about earlier, to be less limited in our negative impact to this world. And so I have more clarity of mind, more awakening, more presence, more mindfulness, and then at the same time, more equanimity, which means balance, harmony, and ability to uh, 
stay peaceful through the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life. Because if you experience more and you don't have equanimity, if you're already not able to maintain balance of mind at the level that you're at now, experiencing more is just going to cause more disruption and more disturbance in your mind. If you can't keep a balanced mind through the life that you're passing through now, when you start experiencing more of it, you'll be in more suffering, more imbalance, right? So you have to also increase your equanimity, your ability to maintain centeredness, to be balanced. And so bowl tea is equanimity. Gong Fu tea is sensitivity. They flow that way in tea. We have to have both. We develop our sensitivity. We develop our ability to prepare tea in a way that transcends the ordinary with grace and beauty. And we recognize that chashi and all the beauty that goes into tea does affect the experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind if that's just subjective, but it does. And so we learn the art of flower arranging and creating beautiful chashi so that our guests come into the tea space and are able to immediately find peace and centeredness. And we're able to share that experience with them and in a better way. So we develop that. We cultivate our understanding of tea in all forms. On the linear level, on the scientific level, learning the history and the science, learning production and different kinds of tea. On the direct level, beyond all the linear too, with our mouths, we should be able to smell dry leaves and know what they are, to be able to taste the tea and know where it comes from and how it was made, um, and to be able to just be given any random tea and be able to prepare it to the, you know, to the best of our abilities and to bring out its highest qualities, to prepare it in the way that it wants to be prepared so that we are as natural a part of its flow, its life from seed to cup as the rain or the sun or any of the other things that made it grow because its journey was from seed to cup and back to seed, right? A leaf, right? A tree bears seeds that bear trees that bear seeds. Mm. And so we're, we're a part of that flow. That's the gong fu. And then the bowl tea, we set down all that. We realize it's mind made essential, but we set it down, Right. So in Zen, this is like saying, you're perfect as you are, but you could use a little improvement. <laughs> it's the paradox of we work on ourselves, but ultimately in the present moment, in our highest selves, we all already have Buddha nature. We're all already awake. We're already alive. We can't be more alive than we already are. We can't be more awake than we already are. We can't be more Buddha than we already are. So the mind is already connected to the transcendent, to that which is beyond and so there's nothing really to be done. And yet there's work to be done. So it's these balance and this interplay between being able to set down our skills and cultivate our skills and not becoming too one or uh, the middle way between them two, between these two. Yeah, so we don't get lost in skills and snobbery. Too much gong fu tea, you become a tea snob. Too much bowl tea and you become a tea guzzler who can't tell the difference between teas and just uh, too relaxed in it. It's not a practice anymore. So it's like meditation. There has to be tension. There's a tension between the yin and the yang. You have to sit upright. Meditation is not just sitting around. It's not just laying around on a sofa. Then you go to sleep. There has to be tension. Your back has to be straight. You have to be upright. There has to be a sense of awareness. And awareness requires a little bit of tension, a little bit of tightness. But also we have to be calm and peaceful. So that's the yin, holding the yang, holding the yin. And that's how we meditate. Upright, awake, but calm. And peaceful, right? So calm, fluid, but also strong, right? Like a swordsman, right? This is the Zen of tea. Mm. What I love about the interplay between the um, Kung Fu tea and bowl tea is, is when you're drinking or serving um, Kung Fu tea, it increases your sensitivity. But at the same time, if you're only doing Kung Fu tea, you forget something. If you go back to bowl tea uh, and set aside the all the skills and everything, and then come back to kung fu tea after that, it also makes you appreciate kung fu tea itself more. The way it's prepared, all the tools, the the teapot, and um, and all the little nuances that go into it. If you only drink kung fu tea and don't drink any bowl tea, then it's easy to take things also for granted. Uh, take uh, your teaware for for granted and think that the only way to prepare tea is the kung fu tea 
or the Kung Fu method. So having those um, two and uh, going, you know, going from one to the other and coming back is has been really beneficial for me because I was introduced to tea more. I was coming more from the the Kung Fu um, Kung Fu perspective. Um, where I was appreciating the smells and the different tastes and all the little subtle nuances. But then when I met this tradition and first had bold tea, I was able to let go and, and set that down and discover this um, beautiful way inward as well, that it's not just about the geekery and the, the little nuances and, and the teapots and and making the, the tea, you know, smell great and, and just, you know, going from one sensory experience to the next but it's actually also about letting go and going inwards and, and learning lessons through tea. As we said at the outset of these two podcasts in the beginning of the first one last time, each of these eight bowls really contains all the others. Hmm. In order to practice Kung Fu tea really well, you have to be able to set it down, which means you have to have a bowl tea practice. I always, when I meet people that only have a bowl tea practice or only have a Kung Fu tea practice, you know, it's easy to see the limitations. I, I, rem- I don't judge. If I'm a guest, then that's what my Bolti practice has afforded me, to s- turn off the judgmental mind and just connect, even if they're handing me tea, tea bag tea in mm-hmm. a mug. I'll, right. I'll receive it. But um, you, can always, you, know, you, can, you can always see that, how beautiful and wonderful it is to have these two things in balance. And each one contains the other one. So you know, if you have good diet and movement and your body's in a healthy state, you'll make better Gung Fu tea. If you're doing it to serve others, you'll make better Gong Fu tea. And so on, all the bowls. If you meditate, you'll make better. So they contain all the eight bowls, contain each, each other. And really, this is all just one life of tea. These distinctions of these eight bowls are just useful pointers so that we can remember to put a little tea in each of the eight bowls. So we can remember not to neglect our diet movement, not to neglect our bowl tea practice, Gong Fu practice, our service, our purity and cleanliness, all of them. Right? It's good to have this sutra so we can remember to put some tea into all these eight bowls. But ultimately, they're all not separate. They're one session. And so you should view them that way. You should view them as one practice, one life of tea that contains all these elements. And um, it's useful to have discussions like this. I encourage you to go download the PDF for the eight bowls, read it, think about the areas that you need to improve, which of your bowls doesn't have enough tea, and how can you go about putting some more tea in that bowl. Uh, and keeping all these bowls like balanced, but at the same time, you know, realize that they're all really just one, and they are uh, just a, a way of talking. They're just a way of um, thinking about it, you know, and, and so they are just a way of exploring. Mm-hmm. And it's not as useful as the actual doing. That's right. The concepts and the sutra and the ideas and the fingers that we're pointing at are not the same as the actual thing practiced. You actually go meditate, not talking about meditation. You go make some bolti, not talking about it or listening to podcasts or whatever. So this is a useful map, mm-hmm. but you have to use it to, to go on the journey. Yep. And these podcasts are a way of also uh, inspiring others. Absolutely. You know, so if you if you feel like you would like to get inspired then turn on the podcast yeah obviously. <laughs> be inspired and you know also offer guidance and uh discussion and and helpful tools and you know clarification of parts of the map so you don't get lost when you're using the map and when you're actually making the journey right but don't get too hung up in the map itself right the map's useful it's a good tool mm-hmm. um, but all the eight bowls contain each other and are part of each other and so um, it's been really great going over them. I'm really happy to sit down like this. I'm really excited to have this Life of Tea podcast where we can, like you said, offer inspiration, offer guidance and tools to charge in around the world. And we can have a forum for discussing the more spiritual side of tea, the more uh, the aspects of tea that make it a Tao, a way of life, uh, a living, which is what we're doing here in the center. We live tea day in and day out. Um, we live all these eight bowls. They're in our life and they're in the life of this center. Whether you like it or not, if you're here, you're cultivating these eight bowls all the time Mm -hmm. um and uh like today they had a cleaning day and then immediately we came in here and had this podcast so it's it's all you know service and cleaning and tea and we're drinking bowl tea now and etc etc so that that's the this is the life that we're living we're not just uh, preaching this from some left field place it's coming out of the practice the sutra comes out of the heart of the practice of the life that we're living here at the hut um Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we hope that that does inspire some of you to make some positive changes in your life and that those positive changes shine from your heart and shine through your pots into your bowls and into the hearts of those you serve. And from them, they serve tea and serve tea and serve tea. And and like it says on every Global Tea at Envelope, right? Through you, love is changing the world, bowl by bowl. Hmm. Eight bowls by eight bowls. <laughs> Thank you, Buddha. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I, I love um, taking time in my day to uh, sit down and, and have a conversation with you about these topics. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life of Tea. I look forward to meeting you again in the next episode. If you're interested in learning more about the eight bowls, uh, you can go to TSageHut website, which is tsagehut.org, and download the PDF. If you like this podcast and would like to support us, then go to globalteahut.org and sign up for the ad-free monthly magazine that we publish, if you haven't already. The magazine covers all aspects of tea, from processing, history, brewing methods, lore, the community aspect, and the spiritual aspect of tea as well. And of course, it comes with clean, sustainably produced tea every month as well. If you would like more linear information about tea and brewing methods, then perhaps go and check out our YouTube channel, also called Global Tea Hut. We just started a new series on brewing tea, with a lot of good content coming your way. <laughs>